Welcome to The Mother Text. I'm Dr. Meredith Kimenyu Shepherd. The guest today is Finnegan Rose Shepherd. He is a writer and a classicist and an entrepreneur, and he's best known for founding and running the transmasculine apparel brand, Both And. I knew that I wanted Finn to be my first guest on the Mother Text podcast because I became frustrated in listening to other podcasts on motherhood in only hearing women's voices. Not because I think that men are underrepresented and feel sorry for them, but because I tire of motherhood being represented as a niche women's issue rather than something that affects everyone and everything and without which all of human society would of course cease to exist. So it became important to me in thinking about presenting the first um, face of mother text to have a male voice. But then the question became, of course, what man is worthy of speaking to the issue of motherhood? And I could only think of one off the top of my head. And that is Finn, who in addition to his other remarkable accomplishments is also my brother. And as a trained philosopher, he's a natural questioner and a natural listener. He's also trans. And while some of you may think that, oh, that means he can understand motherhood because at some point he inhabited at least some version of a female body, that's not it at all. That actually has, I think, nothing to do with why I think he's a good fit for this podcast. What interests me about Finn and his experiences um, is his expertise in transition. So I've asked you here today, Finn, to talk about your thoughts and bodily feelings on and I'm hoping that we can create a conversation in which we bridge these discursive worlds of matrescence or the transition to motherhood and transness or the gender transition. And from there, start to begin to inhabit motherhood as a conversation that can move beyond traditionally women. Motherhood had always been something that I was almost scared of thinking about growing up, uh, which mm -hmm. I'm sure we will discuss, mostly because of the fact that we had what I believe to be um, an example of essentially an archetypical mother, just a, you know, a platonic ideal floating image of what a mother is. And I think I sort of pinned that shape in the sky, shut off my relationship to the notion that I would ever be a mother, and then therefore didn't really think about motherhood as a concept for much of my life until you, my sister, got pregnant. And I watched you, as I believe you've watched me in transition, go through this extraordinary reconstruction of self. And it's been really incredible and sometimes challenging um, watching that. But I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited to be here and, and be in conversation about it and add what what little I, I can to the conversation. 
I think it's also worth mentioning something about our kind of accidentally yet uncannily parallel timelines with transition. So you started, when did you start taking testosterone? So I, well, you know, there's sort of three categories people tend to think of transitioning in. There's socially transitioning, there's medically mm -hmm. transitioning, and there's legally transitioning. And even those different categories sort of map on to your pregnancy. Um, right. I sort of came out socially transitioning, which is to, you know, ask those around you to use, you know, whatever pronouns you're choosing, potentially a different name. Uh, within, I think, about a month of you being pregnant, I think right. I came back to Colorado to talk to the family in late March of 2019. And if I'm remembering correctly, you got pregnant in April or May 2019. May, I think. Yes. Um, but yeah, sometime around that late spring. And I do remember when you called me I to tell me uh, to come out socially. I was taking a bath that wasn't very warm because I was obsessed with not harming the fetus with overly hot water. So I definitely remember that moment clearly. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I remember you saying, Meredith, I think I'm a boy. And there's something mind-blowing about the fact that you were, I don't want to say becoming a boy, um, because I think you already were, and that's something that I'd love for you to talk about, how in a language like English that does mm, maybe not require, but usually asks us to use tenses about experiences, how do we talk about your maleness? Is that something that you became at a certain point? Is it something that you always were? Are there different stages of maleness? But so those are all questions about that get to the heart of the nature of transition and whether transition is a moment in time. Um, is it something that we can pinpoint or is it more gradual? And so let's put a pin in that for a second. And I just want to focus on this remarkable parallel of you saying and my hearing for the first time that you are a boy. Meredith, I think I'm a boy at the same time that I was growing a boy <laughs> inside of me. <laughs> so, I mean, beside the fact that our father was thrilled to suddenly have more male power in the in the household. <laughs> he got it's about time. He just you know, been steamrolled his whole life. Yeah, got two new men just in one year. Um uh there's something kind of incredible about both of us. And I don't I don't want to project my own language of of growth or newness onto you because you had obviously been a boy for some time, if not your entire life, but in that in some sense there were these two new boys in our lives that we were growing or becoming at the same at the same time um and to quote the the wonderful columbia university professor saidia hartman neither one of us i know has an intention to use what she calls the bludgeon of identification to compare 
gender transition and motherhood as though they're, you know, game or even as if they can be metaphorized uh, with one as a metaphor for the other. But both transitions are so hard and so painful. And both transitions have a great amount of social expectations to not be hard and painful. Uh, both uh, transgender people and mothers experience a social expectation for joy and I think also a sense of completion or fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to unpack there. I think I'll, I'll start off with a, an image or a statement that came to me while you were speaking and then sort of back it up and explain it. But, uh, you know, first of all, it's very different for all the trans people I've spoken to. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that this is the trans experience, but for me, the analogy is almost that um, as Becca, I was- And Becca is, or was who? Becca Becca was my name and I suppose Mm -hmm. my personhood um, that I wouldn't say identified as female specifically, but sort of identified with non-identity. I think mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my life trying to sort of extract myself from the entire car pileup, as I sometimes call it. Um, and and <laughs> the, much of transition- <laughs> much The car pileup of gender or? Just identity, really. Identity. You know, what a mess. <laughs> Who wants to get involved? Um, at much of much of transitioning, as a sign note, I would say, is actually the humility of accepting finitude and accepting you can't actually evade identity. But um, before coming out as thin or whatever language we want to put to it, I think the experience, the image is that Becca was a kind of host or mother to Finn, that Finn was embedded and that he needed to be birthed quite literally but what is interesting is that um while before transitioning i feel like there was a simultaneity that both existed and perhaps maybe becca was foregrounded and finn was in the background after transitioning um although we can talk about temporality there and what i mean by after i suppose after beginning to transition um i was forced to shed becca I had to give birth and then kill her. And uh, that required a lot of grieving. Um, sometimes the image I think about is that it was like a like an old school motorcycle with a sidecar. And like Becca um, was driving and there was like this little sidecar. And then like I got to an exit ramp and they had to detach and Becca went flying off the ramp. And then the sidecar had to like grow a wheel to steer with and like its own engine and all these other things to continue onwards. But for for a long time, Finn felt like an, a, a third person being. In fact, that the first way that I dealt with it is I started writing letters back and forth. I bought a journal and I would write letters like Dear Becca and I would write from Finn to Becca and then I would write to, uh, I forget which one I said first, but I'd write back and forth, mm-hmm. back and forth between the two. And then gradually over time and over the process of um, a, I think part of it was just the working through the shame and making this ask of the world, putting forward more timid statements like, I think I'm a boy or maybe mm-hmm. X or would it be okay to use these pronouns? And then seeing that validated and held and accepted in the world builds courage and confidence. I, I read this great line the other day. I'm sorry, I'll stop ranting soon. But 
it just hit me over the head because it was so funny. It was some writer who's like, you know, whoever tells you confidence comes from within, it's bullshit. That like <laughs> you can't build confidence from within. First, it has to come from without, and yeah. then you integrate it in the right way and you build it. But that that was such like an honest treatment of the, you know this illusion that you can nurture identity totally within yourself and that it doesn't exist in the outside or doesn't need to exist in the outside realm is like that's it. We're really setting ourselves up for failure there. So it was um it was a back and forth process I think of of offering the world something, feeling a boost of confidence, harnessing that, taking it the next step forward, and then also simultaneously grieving the part of me that I recognized I was shedding and sort of, you know, emerging into a new self. Wow. So much to unpack there. I love the image of the motorcycle with the side carriage. I think that's <laughs> incredibly fitting for background Finn and, and ultimately Finn. But I want to just leap into this question about confidence coming from the outside, because what struck me so deeply about a huge distinction between motherhood and gender transition is that you don't have to ask permission um, for people to respect your decision to have like to be pregnant and to have a child. Um, I mean, I suppose there are cases where it's it's a more complicated or you know unintended pregnancy, but but as a normative rule, pregnancy and especially once a pregnancy is visible is something that automatically creates affirmation from everyone, including strangers. And so in a way, it's the opposite of the social coming out of gender transition that I felt so honored by society when I was pregnant in many ways. I didn't feel like my, you know, my morning sickness wasn't going to get me extra sick days from work or anything like that. But as a member of society, I felt so much outside affirmation. And I also received more medical care than I'd ever received in my life and probably better and more um, careful medical care than I'd ever received. And I was absolutely shocked to discover upon having a baby that that outside affirmation largely disappeared and that I was left essentially alone with my private community made up of my family um, to take care of this child. And uh, other than the single eight-week visit whose primary purpose historically and still seems to be to confirm that you are ready to have sexual intercourse again with your husband, after that, there's nothing. Um, you never see your midwife again, at least not in the medical system I was in, which I'm not going to pretend to some far-flung marginalized space. I was working at Yale and I was in the Yale uh, Yale Medical School system. Um, and so in a way, I wonder if there's like an, uh, an inverse of our experiences and you had to find confidence from within really early on at the beginning to have the courage to even ask people for a kind of permission to be who you are and you had to build that up. And I was showered with affirmation from the beginning and then had to learn to find it internally later on. Um, and I also think that there's an interesting parallel with what you said about grieving the finitude of transition, that there's no more 
at least for you, like you, you killed Becca. There's no more kind of playing around. You are, you are coate um, and settled in a form. And I've often wondered if one of the reasons that people are so nice to pregnant ladies is because that, that fetus so long as it is not yet out and, you know, writhing and screaming and demanding things from the world, that fetus can be anything. That fetus can be the next Messiah. That fetus can have all of our hopes and dreams projected onto it. Um, it's in Kuwait and therefore limitless and who wouldn't love that? But a baby, a baby that requires immediate and mundane and specific needs is not something that strangers are interested in investing in. I mean, there, there's so much I could respond to in my own experience there, but there's also so many things you pointed to in your own that I would like to, to hear about. And I guess maybe the simplest access point to it is I just want to know about how, hmm. well, there's these parallel threads that we're exploring in terms of becoming and temporality and then the way that that interfaces with the outside world and the way that that's like yes. validated or seen and i mean for one thing i've never i don't think had a conversation with you about the notion of becoming or motherhood in you prior to pregnancy um or the way that this identity mm. came to be integrated with you and then um I guess it's it's permutations through the external into the internal and where you are now and where that confidence is built from. But I, I, I would just like to open up some more space for you to talk about all this rather than turn it back to me. Sure. That's interesting. Your your question about motherhood before pregnancy, I would say I didn't know anything about motherhood before pregnancy or rather that whatever I thought I knew about motherhood was much more not merely abstract, but really metaphorical. So if somebody said, as I remember, um, we we went to this cute little, cute is the nice word, sad is the, <laughs> sad is another word for it, little neighborhood poetry group <laughs> together years ago. And I do remember uh, a poet there uh, who had just finished her poetry dissertation saying that it had felt like a birth. And I really, like really felt like I got that. Like I knew what it meant to feel like a book, finishing a book could be like a birth, but she had never had kids and I hadn't had kids at that point. And I don't think, um, I'm not saying that I'm against birth as a metaphor because I think it's, you know, it like does damage to the actual experience or anything like that. I don't think, I don't think the actual experience of birth is vulnerable <laughs> like it doesn't it's going to be hurt by metaphor because it is what it is and it always has been and life depends on it um and it's incredibly violent and powerful um and without it we'd all be dead <laughs> so um it's not that i'm i'm worried about taking away any power from that experience it's that my my lack of knowing um has to do with the lack of embodiment. So all I understood of motherhood was through 
pictures or stories or metaphor. And after birth, I read Laylee Long Soldier's poetry collection, Whereas, and she describes her birth experience. And one of the lines in there that I just went over, over and over again, is the body is everything. And I had never been put in a situation where my body was everything. I had never experienced severe sexual trauma. I had never experienced extreme poverty or deprivation or violence against my physical person. And so I thought I understood birth as a concept. And um, there's a line from another one of my favorite books, Waiting for the Barbarians. And I'm going to use this line, even though it's about torture, and then I'll explain why I think it is actually okay to talk about birth and torture in the same conversation or in parallel. Um, so the protagonist is a is a privileged being and at a certain point he is made to experience torture and the line which i hope i'm quoting close to exactly is they came into that room to show me and in that room they showed me a great deal and the reason that's so much more haunting and horrific than any kind of grisly torture porn visceral description of what he endured is that we all have this like fear deep down of being shown that we are ultimately a body and the experience of becoming that um i'll quote another scholar on this um elaine scary who writes about the body and pain that the common denominator across all experiences of great pain is our loss of language that we're reduced to the infant's scream. That's the, that's the sound we hear in torture. That's the sound we hear in birth. Um, and without language, what are we? So for me, birth can never go back to being something that is only a metaphor and i don't know any mother for whom that could be true either there's a sense of entering a tribe of knowing which is not to say that becoming a mother or identifying with other mothers means identifying with a sense of victimhood or even of survivorship it's more a sense of knowledge that yes i accessed that room where i was shown a great deal and i got out and i brought out with me a baby and that did not happen to many of our ancestors and it does not happen to many women in other parts of the world without access to the medicine that i had and it does not happen to many women in this country who don't have access to the medicine i had um, they don't get to exit the room or they don't get to exit the room with a baby but there's something to be said about motherhood as a territory. Um, I think there's a lot of ways I could describe motherhood as identity or 
um, temporality. But I think the way that's most helpful for me to visualize it or the way that I most embody it is as a territory, probably because territories shift. So we've been talking about a room um, and there are so many other spaces and other ways that I would describe the way the territory of motherhood has shifted for me. But there is a comfort I find in knowing that no matter how different our experiences are, in in and across other mothers we all have stepped foot in some of these same territories and so there's like a kind of shared knowing um that has to do with that and i'm curious if you'd be willing to speak about territories you crossed through the transition process i remember you describing one quite evocatively um as a swamp and um i don't know if that that the look on your face you, you looked up in that way that's like oh right that's that's distant <laughs> which is good I think, you know the swamp is years and years away now but i wonder if the if the language of territory or of the room or of shared territory resonates at all with your experience I I love the idea of territory. I'd never thought of it in that way before, but I think that's a very, very helpful way of putting it. The swamp, as my old therapist would happily report, I think has been a common motif at the, at the beginnings of things for me throughout my life. But I, I do think um, that there's one way I can answer this that then circles back to other things you were saying that I would like to touch on which at the beginning, the metaphor I remember or the image I remember is of standing outside the door to a very enormous room and um, knowing that the lights were off and that it was sort of like a warehouse filled with cluttered furniture. And that once mm. I opened the door, I would need to just kind of bump around in the dark to try and find the light, but I would have no concept of how big the room is or if there even was a light switch and i also had this deep embedded knowledge that once i went in i wouldn't leave you know this is something that's talked about a lot when people mm -hmm. begin hormone replacement therapy is well stop if you don't like it like you can always go off of it and most of the changes are reversible or so dissipate there are some that don't change like if, if you take it long enough that your voice drops then you can't reverse that but most of the changes are reversible and so there's this common theme of it's not as big of a leap as you think like it's okay don't take it too seriously like you can try this out and figure out if it's right for you and on the one hand that's true and on the other hand i think for myself and many other people we know deep down we're not walking back out of that room um so even though we technically know there's a door behind us it doesn't it's not experienced as such and so um in terms of territory i think the the other the other way that i thought about it was that in all the other challenges i'd gone through in my life i knew what it was like to become happy again you know after heartbreak after my mm -hmm. first heartbreak it was like sure i this is awful I'm in, you know, I'm at sea, but I know what it's like to climb to shore again. And I can trust in that process. 
but this was a process of literally, you know, stripping myself of, of everything, diving into sort of an ocean that I knew had monsters and having no idea if there even was another shore or what that would be like experientially. Um, but, but one thing that I did want to raise as you spoke, well, two things, one is about language and one is about temporality in the sense of before or after, because I think it's very easy to push against, well, to push against anything that is quote unquote binary these days in terms of before and after. But I tend to think of binary in, in many ways as very informative and helpful a lot of the time, if for no other reason than as the polarity against which one pushes and then redefines for mm -hmm. themselves. But divorced from it entirely, I think, you know, a simple way of putting it is you can just kind of operate under the totally existentially terrifying, overwhelming tyranny of, of freedom. And when I was first considering whether to begin testosterone, I, as this Luddite who'd always judged social media, was on Instagram one day, came across this transition account that had thousands of trans men who'd sent in a picture from, you know, at some stage, quote unquote, before, and then right. a picture of them, quote unquote, after. And, and the reality is it doesn't label it before and after, but that's what having two pictures next to each other shows. And it took all the five minutes of me scrolling that to decide to start testosterone. I, I think um, I had thought about this my whole life, but then simply seeing this is what transformation can look like was enough to motivate action. And so you can't say that huh. sticking those those posts in time isn't useful, even if it isn't where the conversation ends. And this is where I get to the other point, which is that, you know, you perhaps were more celebrated by society visibly, or there is a place for you in society. But what you don't have to the same degree, I think, as the you know the transgender conversation, or that 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 was a good slip. We have language. Language is so important to mm. transitioning and to the way that right. it is thought about and talked about. And to a certain degree, I would even argue we place too much emphasis on language, or we place it in the wrong arena. I think sometimes we stage little battles that make us lose the war, whereas the real meat of understanding this comes through what we're doing now, which is storytelling, I think, right. rather than squabbling about pronouns. But there is a really important delineation there because you and I are both people who are fundamentally moved by and tuned into language. And the experience I went through was one in which, to a certain degree, at least for a while, language is all you have. You start injecting testosterone, mm -hmm. no changes are happening. And you're walking around the world telling people to essentially put aside the categories that they're visually having put into their brain and trust in language more than what they're seeing. And that is very aligned with who I am given my emphasis on language, whereas pregnancy was a really sort of oppositional position for you to operate out of. Yeah. Hmm. Right, yeah, there's no, there's no hiding the visual cues in terms of, in terms of pregnancy. I wanna go back to that to that moment where you, those five minutes where you saw those essentially before and after photos, can you tell me about what you saw and what it was about what you saw that created such a release for you to press start on opening the door to this dark warehouse from which you would never 
return. That seems like a pretty um, a pretty high bar to set for an Insta five minutes on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and now Instagram keeps borrowing both Anne's accounts, so complicated right. feelings about yes. the organization. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, if I'm going to be honest, I think it's not it's something that's politically incorrect, but it's perhaps not the most enlightened reasoning that existed at the time. I think my reasoning has changed sense. But I think what happened to me back then in this sort of fawn-like stage of my transition was that the, the, the great fear for me in transitioning is that I was afraid the world would either pity me or think I was crazy. Hmm. And I couldn't live with that. And I thought that the world would pity me because they would see me attempting and necessarily and ultimately failing in my approximation of being something else. That I could maybe get close, but I would never really quote unquote be a man. And that there was something pitiful about that, that I would lose in some sense. Um, and again, I, I'm not necessarily, I don't think this is the most nuanced view, but I had very little visuals or representation in my life of what trans maleness looked like before that account. I wasn't really? on social media. And scrolling through that feed, I saw a such a wide diversity of representation, but also on a more simple level, I saw a bunch of pictures of people who just look like dudes to me, just cis men who I never in a million years would have guessed were trans. And that released me from the particular insecurity about imitation. I have since completely changed my relationship to masculinity and approximation and imitation in a way that I feel is um, that I'm more proud of for me personally, which is that, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you think there's a monster under the bed your whole life. And then when you finally get up the courage to look, it's just dust balls. I think it's sort of like, you know, now that I have transitioned, I used to see such stark delineation of gender in the world. It was so, so obvious to me. And I could read the way men walked and talked and how women walked and talked and everything had to be so separate. And now that I've transitioned, it's sort of like, oh yeah, we're kind of like all the same. It's like really not that big of a deal. And, you know, to, to which some people's response might be like, well, why go through all that work then? Like, it, you know, if it's, right. if it's all the same, like, why are you doing so much to yourself to be this other category? But it's like, no, first you need your territory. You need right. to create the space out of which you can then sort of divest from how attached you are to these categories and labels. Um, so yeah, that's my roundabout way of answering that. Mm. You spoke about shame earlier, and I wonder, I think there's a lot of shame attached to motherhood in various fashions as well. It's similar with what I described with the inverse of having great approval and affirmation through pregnancy and then that disappearing. I think mothers are revered so long as the mess of motherhood is kept private. So yeah. I remember really trying to find a role model of motherhood who matched my experience because our mom, as you say, was the platonic ideal, a stay-at-home mom, an early childhood educator. She taught at the preschool where we went to school so that if we got sick, she'd be just right across the fence, et cetera, et cetera. So when I was working as an academic, I was looking for 
academic women who were mothers who might be kind of a proxy for my own experience. Um, there was a woman who returned from maternity leave. She was in my field, a bit older, and I asked her how she was doing when she came back to campus. And she had this big smile and uh, said, oh, my baby's just a lot of fun. And this was when I was maybe eight months pregnant. And I thought, oh, great. Like, okay, that's what it will be like. <laughs> <laughs> it will be a lot of fun. My baby will be a lot of fun. And I will be able to say that back on campus, looking just as I did and speaking with my former colleagues. And that didn't happen for me. And it happens for some women, but many women I know that's not their experience. The experience is ground shattering in a way that, again, I think territory metaphors are most useful here, it shifts the plates of the earth. And that's why, for instance, the pay gap between childless women and men is 98 cents on the dollar and between mothers and men is 64 cents on the dollar. And why millions more women and mothers in particular dropped out of the workforce during COVID, for instance, than men or than fathers and on and on with all sorts of statistics that can illustrate how this is not you know, simply a, a personal anecdote, but a systemic issue of motherhood being something ground shattering. And there's shame in that. There's shame in not being able to inhabit both territories successfully at the same time. And there's shame in inhabiting only one territory over the other. That's why there's this horrible thing called the mommy wars between the stay-at-home moms and the go-back-to-work moms. Um, it's not because one side is, is better than the other. It's because, in my opinion, because there's shame at our territories being limited and our powers to inhabit either one well are inevitably limited as anyone's would be. And what I have come to realize, and the reason I created Mother Text, is that one way to mitigate the shame is not simply to address the actual ground. So it's not just about, for instance, creating longer family leave packages, um, or universal free childcare, all of those things are important, but those are fights that I have seen other people waging for a very long time. And I do not think they will be one within a timeline that is fast enough for my lifetime to feel like there's a kind of success. And so what I'm interested in is where we do have the capacity to change the lever swiftly, and that's through narrative. So, if the circumstance is going to be difficult, if the ground is going to shatter anyways, what would it mean to expose that to the world so that women who don't yet have children but are planning on it and men who don't know much about motherhood but who love women and want to respect mothers can understand why mothers struggle to inhabit territories 
that to everyone else looks like it has even footing. And that, to me, eradicating or at least reducing the shame of the difficulty is not quite as important as as eradicating or eliminating the the actual difficulties themselves but for me personally it's close because the shame itself is such a burden the shame at the struggle is in on many days is almost as hard as the struggle itself and it's also where i have some power and where other mothers have power as well and so that's that narrative lever is something that you also have experience with in the in the trans world and i'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what you see narrative as capable of accomplishing around translating a a marginal in quotes experience to normative and caring audiences and why it's worth doing that until early adolescence my only exposure to transness was boys don't cry and max and the l word uh in adolescence i met one trans person and by my early 20s i knew two people who had medically transitioned um so i simply didn't have an understanding of what transness could look like it was literally invisible to me and i've read really wonderful memoirs of people who paved this path far before me and in far more extreme ways is one that pops to mind of somebody who's trying to transition in i think i believe the 70s or the early 80s and all they wanted was a single picture of what they like of what would it look like after a surgery and doctors um denied this there was no access to this there's no way you know social media didn't exist it wasn't in books it wasn't in the newspapers medical records were sealed and so there's this person trying to make this decision about surgery with literally no idea of what that will look like afterwards um which brings you know the the, the whole notion of leaping off an edge into uncertainty to a totally different level Right. Talk about pressure on the internal imagination and and courage to to make that leap. I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what those numbers look like now. I mean, you know, you're talking about like counting on one hand, the number of cultural references and then later the number of people you knew. And how has the visibility of transness changed for you in the last few years? For me or for the world? Well, how does the world affect you, I suppose, is the correct question. Well, as soon as I started transitioning, um, family members, my father in particular, sends me a New York Times article, probably, or like an NPR, you know, profile, <laughs> something about another trans person, I would say like twice a week on average. Um, wow. th that's sort of this like joking aside, but I did once look through the New York Times archives and I, I don't remember the exact statistic off my head, but it was something like between 1980 and 2000, there were like 586 uses of the word transgender in the New York Times. And between like 2018 and 2020, it was something like 12,000 or something like that. Just wow. an absolute explosion of, I would say, interest slash fixation 
slash fetishization slash um well etc etc there's a lot of adjectives we could use to describe sort of the cultural fixation on um, transness right now but for me whether that's social media and actually being on social media now and at, for my job being uh to constantly be in contact with members of the community whether that's me interviewing people or i still do all the customer service for both because it's really important for me to understand what's actually going on in people's experiences so i'm talking with hundreds of people per week um and seeing those people online and in transition and wearing clothes i've designed whereas before it was like okay i can conjure up one image of what it looks like if you're assigned female at birth and then you start taking testosterone that's all i got yeah so what does the effect of having so much diversity of representation within this single category offer and i'm hoping we can talk about this in the in the trans community sense particularly in terms of social media presence and visibility and then talk about it in the motherhood sphere as well so what are some of the benefits of having so much visibility around transness and benefits of having so much diversity within the category of transness yeah i'm glad you brought in motherhood because i do want to turn at least an aspect of this question back on you but i think my first reaction is there is always um a tension between what is freeing about group identity and what is limiting or precarious about group identity that's always the trade-off and i think first reaction is when you see diversity um you know you see enough diversity and you go full circle and you're like well, this isn't a group this is humanity right. or you know group identity becomes universal which then becomes individual again and round and round the carousel you go um, which for me was incredibly freeing because everything I was afraid about with transness was being slotted into being one particular thing, which I personally couldn't stand. So understanding how many different ways you can be trans and look if you are trans and present yourself as you're trans was probably the biggest existential comfort I could get. On the other hand, there's sort of the complexity of, well, then why even have a label to it? You know, what, what, what is grouping this group together? Um, so that's why I would be really curious to turn it back on motherhood for you and that tension between sort of individual group and what is universally shared. Yeah, I think I have also really struggled against many of the types within the type. So I remember when I first started encountering the use of the word mama, M-A-M-A, -A, which coming from my son's lips is absolutely endearing and fitting and perfect and sounds exactly as it should and coming from the pen of another adult feels just really infantilizing and kind of gross like i'm not a mama <laughs> um i'm a mother um i think there's something about the abbreviation of the term into the mouth of a child that uh, feels wrong when it's applied to entire groups of adults. But that would not likely be a problem I'd notice with the language if I wasn't already irked by how both infantilized and 
animalized mothers are. So I remember when I was shopping for maternity clothing and found a, I can't remember if it was the company name or if it was just the name of one of their lines, um, but it was called utterly something like utterly amazing and spelled with UDD like <laughs> as in like you are a cow you will be milking and the fact that many women breastfeed and are lactating including myself is completely normal and can be very empowering to be compared with a cow and to have the comparison with a cow be something that a brand thought would make mothers want to buy their product says a lot about the spaces that mothers are slotted into. And there's a long-standing discourse around the animal slash brain split, how the natural world and the animal world is perceived as innately feminine, and then the rational and thinking world is perceived as innately male. And that's something that I had read about and heard about in literature courses. And I never thought that I would be somebody whose bodily efforts would be naturalized. Um, and the problem, I think, with naturalizing the bodily labors of motherhood is that as humans, we have an understanding of what nature does as outside the realm of the rational and the human and as this almost like a natural effort. It just it's like the flowers just come up in the spring and a baby is just like grows in the uterus and it just happens. And in a sense, yes, like I wasn't rationally or consciously growing the fetus. I had no mind control over that that I could be aware of, but that didn't mean that it wasn't effortful or that it wasn't impacting my brain in other ways. So the amount of days that I spent just steamrolled by the effort of growing a fetus, of growing a placenta, um, of hiding my vomit from colleagues, of having to go home at lunchtime to take a nap and then being shaken awake by my husband at 6 p.m. when he came home and having this level of exhaustion that took me away from my brain's work be considered something that is most often metaphorized as a flower, uh, which for me, not being a gardener and not being a, bi you know, a plant biologist who really is in tune with what it takes for a flower to live and grow and survive and thrive was offensive because it discounted the labor. And once labor is discounted, then the person doing the labor is no longer valuable within an economic system that rewards labor and it's also no longer valuable within a narrative system that valorizes labor through the storytelling that we give to different rewards can i 
just as an aside, do do you know the history of the use of the phrase going into labor? No. Do you? I, I don't either. I'm just oh. you, you, you no, you kept using the you kept using the phrase labor and then I was thinking about how that's so interesting that in a certain way uh what you're speaking to is at you know at least in that phrase hidden in plain sight in this really interesting right. way it's like you you put something close enough in front of people that it's in their blind spot and they can't see it wait explain what you mean by that in terms of the phrase going into labor well yeah i mean language works like that right you use a word so many times same with cliches it's like they mm -hmm. they they become cliche because of a reason, because they really point at a truth. And then you say them so many times, it's like rubbing a coin down, like the face disappears over time. And we refer to this act of giving birth as going into labor. It's not mm -hmm. just that you labored, it's in the present progressive. It is an act right. of continuing labor. And yet it's like right there in our cultural consciousness, so close that we almost have completely lost a regard for what that word actually means. Right, right. I mean, perhaps one should start answering the question of how long were you in labor to say I still am. <laughs> exactly. It never ended. It never ended. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. I wonder I wonder if there's anybody who's done something conscious with that or if it is one of those just hidden in, in plain sight. But it's something that I've run up against a lot in my writing about the labors of motherhood where i often have to force myself to sort of internally thesaurus labor into work or or other you know queer child care so that people don't think i'm simply talking about childbirth but you're right the labor is is hidden in plain sight and that's exactly the problem is that it's both childbirth and the labors of motherhood overall are completely hidden in plain sight and naturalized away. And so I think the tying it back into, you know, some parallels with the trans experience and in terms of visibility, there's been an explosion of representations of motherhood since the explosion of social media. Um, so with the rise of online blogging, there was a whole, um, sort of cascade of mothers blogging about their experiences. And then that quickly turned into mothers realizing that they could turn their blogs into careers through product placement. And that meant that by the time I was starting to look for interesting and provocative pregnancy and motherhood blogs, that it was very, very hard for me to find something that wasn't secretly trying or not so secretly trying to sell me something. And that felt that felt infantilizing too because it felt like why do you think i'm blind enough to read your piece about what you do with your child and not realize that the entire point of this is to lead me to a link um so that i will then go and buy the same product and that i will use for my own child which is not to say that i blame mothers for capitalizing on the internet or on social media i mean many mothers are thrown out of traditional workplaces and then blogs and other parts of the um, social media sphere like uh, motherhood influencers on on instagram become lucrative and um 
niche necessary in order for them to get a paycheck at the end of the month. And so that kind of algorithmic system into which motherhood narratives are slotted reduces the capacity for the full story of motherhood to be told. And there's something about the inability to have control over the curation of your life in real time that makes social media especially appealing. And I was hmm. speaking with a psychologist friend of mine about the appeal of a particular motherhood influencer. I don't even remember her name and I wouldn't want to pick on her anyways. So um, I won't look it up, but she, she essentially is promoting a vision of a back to the simple roots style of motherhood and makes her own clothes and bakes, you know, fresh bread or pie every morning and has her adorable kids and the adorable, you know, hand crocheted woolly hats or whatever. And she has tens of thousands of followers. And this image of back to simplicity is obviously so compelling to that many people, despite the fact that she clearly has a professional photo shoot every day. And the camera is, <laughs> you know, the camera's right there in the little, you know, pretend a homestead. And I was speaking about this with a friend who's a psychologist and a mother and saying, you know, why, like, why do people want this fantasy life so badly that they're willing to forego disbelief and pretend that this is real? And she was saying, well, the data suggests that the more negative emotions that social media brings up, the longer people will stay looking at it. And so it may not actually be a genuine appeal. It may be longing or jealousy, or even I confess to sometimes feel grief that I don't and perhaps can't have that. Or maybe for me, there's even an extra layer of grief knowing that not even she has that. And as somebody who also really cares about story and is interested in why certain stories matter, even if they may be painful or even if they may be fantasy and therefore out of reach of our real lives, I have to believe that coming from my own experience, at least and those of the mothers I've spoken to um, who I'm friends with, that we lack in our day-to-day -day shepherding of our children to and fro and the the changing of the diapers with a squirming body and the the chaos of the stuff on the floor we lack a frame <laughs> like there's just this kind of bleeding out of the detritus of our days that an instagram square cures if only for a moment in time 
And so I think the curation becomes perhaps going back to what I asked you earlier around wanting to be extraordinary and the overcompensation, like the online curation becomes a fantasy compensation for the borders and the control we lack in our daily lives. Then the question would be, is that a problem? I mean, I would say in that sense, I think there's great similarity between social media and art. I think what we long mm -hmm. for is a concentrated life, not necessarily even a mm -hmm. happy one, but one in which everything is compressed to its most heightened form. And so, you know, it's so much more romantic in a montage, you know, when you've got the third act in a movie and the person's life has fallen apart and then you have a one minute montage in which suddenly mm -hmm. they wake up and start running and they break up with the bad partner and they start connecting with their friends again and they clean out their apartment and all these things. It's like, it's a lot nicer to do that when you have music in the background, a frame <laughs> surrounding you and it's compressed to a minute. Because day to day, there's just so much detritus involved. Right. And so, and I think that's the same with literature. I think it's definitely true with movies and TV. And I think it's also true with social media. I think that research the therapist pointed to is really interesting. I need to think about that more. But before you even mention that, I would say, yeah, I don't, I, I think it's an oversimplification slash an error to argue that what we're looking for or the problem with social media is that people show themselves at their best or the ha their happiest. I don't think it's even about happiness. I think it's about uh, order versus chaos or containment versus detritus. Yeah. And order and containment are things that I never struggled with until I became a mom. And as somebody who was, you know, a mild perfectionist and often best in the class, just naturally loved school, was naturally good at the at the subjects that I gravitated towards. And I had friends who were also like me. And so now that those friends have also had children and have also gone from being valedictorians and top of their career to like me struggling to get the diaper bag packed on time in the morning and the kids out the door and the bottles made and the breasts pumped and the dishes attended to and the cycles the endless kind of dantean inferno of endless cycles completed they have no order we have no order or we have we have a an operational order like we live and we function within a state of chaos that had never been a part of our lives previously and i don't think i describe any of us as actually having objectively chaotic families we are all very loving families and our children have a strong sense of security and and rhythm and um actually order to their days but to create the rhythm for a child means 
forfeiting or at least stretching beyond possible recognition the rhythms that felt natural to us as working, highly functioning adults. And that experience of things being not contained is probably one of the most universal experiences of motherhood and probably explains why the curation, whether in live time or on social media, is so such a prevalent and innate part of the experience of representing our motherhood to, to others. I think one of the difficulties of the lack of containment that one experiences when one, quote, goes into labor <laughs> and the labor never ends is that the problem I've found is not that is not merely that society doesn't generally recognize the labor of motherhood, but that it recognizes the hardship of things not being contained or orderly so long as it has nothing to do with motherhood and children. And this is something that became very clear to me through the example of sleep deprivation. And I'll give two anecdotes to illustrate this. So I remember when I was doing my PhD, I, being a highly organized and effective and frugal person, would go to conferences in Europe or I, I was based in New York City. So going to Los Angeles was was far. So I'd fly back on a red eye. I'd get the cheapest flight back to New York City from wherever I'd been delivering a paper. And I would refuse to take a taxi home from the airport. So I'd, you know, I'd force myself to do the, the bus and the train and the subway combo. And I'd get back to Columbia and I'd shower at the gym. And then I'd walk into class with my little rolly suitcase and I'd greet my students. And with sort of a cavalier wave of my hand, I'd explain my suitcases. Oh, sorry, I just got back from a conference in Amsterdam or Los Angeles or London or you know Kigali or whatever it was and there would be this sort of collective gasp of recognition that I had given up my sleep that night to fly back like a hero to teach class on time and and I was not the only person who did this my advisor whenever I went to see him would say things like oh yes I'm so tired I just got back from Cairo or oh yes I missed my sleep last night because I was up uh you know reading so-and-so's dissertation or preparing a lecture for such and such a fancy place and I thought like my students thought and like my advisor thought that giving up sleep for one night for your work was an incredibly noble thing and it deserved praise, gosh darn it, it deserved praise, and it got it. And I remember remembering those moments in, I have not slept through the night in nine months, because my son was about six months old at that point, and the last trimester of pregnancy, I couldn't sleep because of muscle spasms. And there was this resounding silence in response and i even tried out saying it to people 
And the answers I would get from fellow parents were camaraderie, but also a kind of camaraderie that comes across sometimes as dismissal, like, oh yeah, my son didn't sleep till he was three, or I had to walk my son over the ice patches for five hours each night in the winter that he was born to get him to sleep. And if I told it to people who weren't parents, like former students of mine who I was friends with still, I got this sort of polite but blank nod, like that makes no sense to me in the sense that nobody other than a parent or perhaps a soldier can understand what it's like to go that long without sleep. And so even though the count of the sleeplessness is so much higher, it counts for so much less. So one night off in graduate school was like a round of applause and nine months off as a mother was nothing. And so the problem there in my, to my mind is not that people don't care about mother's sleep deprivation. It's that people care about a professor's sleep deprivation, but they don't care about a mother's. The bar for recognizing labor shifts. And once it enters the territory of motherhood, the labor almost dissolves <laughs> in terms of its visibility. And I'm curious. And weirdly, yeah, weirdly, ahead. it's almost like there's an inverse relationship to praise and perceived agency that I think me being one of those people on the outside who I think genuinely can't imagine what it's like, um, there's a reactiveness to the graduate student who forgoes a night because on some level that leads to us as a choice. They're making this noble right. choice for their career and their values. And we can imagine ourselves in those shoes and we can aim towards that. We can say, yeah, I want, you know, I'm an undergraduate now, but someday I'm going to be that graduate student who's so passionate about what I'm doing, care so much that I'll give up a night of sleep for it. Whereas none of us really want to imagine ourselves as the parent who has no choice in the matter and simply is forced into not getting sleep for nine months. You know, it's like, it's read as this sort of on some level, unavoidable, terrifying nightmare that's coming down the tracks for most people who imagine that they'll become parents and they don't get a say in it and they don't want to think about it in the meantime. I actually felt that before I came a mother, I'd see mothers who were struggling or I'd hear narratives of mother's struggle and i'd assume i didn't feel like it was coming down the channel for me even though i knew i wanted to be a parent i assumed it was because they were incompetent like i assumed it was because they couldn't get their life into control and i as somebody who could teach a class after a red-eye flight would have things under control and so there was this kind of contempt for somebody who got themselves into that situation, like got themselves into a situation where they didn't have control and they didn't have a choice. That's ugly and contemptible. Yeah, I would say it's inherently repulsive to us. I mean, that doesn't get much scarier than that. Right. And now when I see other mothers in that situation, my response 
I have an almost like a Pavlovian impulse to help. We have this metaphor in English for the, the person who helps the mother is an extra pair of hands. And I always thought before I became a mother that that was just kind of like an accidental metaphor. I understood what it meant. I didn't realize it was literal. I didn't realize when you became a mother that you needed more hands, that there was literally, if you are carrying a baby there and you are carrying a baby's stuff, you literally don't have enough hands. And the only answer other than evolution granting mothers more hands, which could take a while, is for help. And needing help is really hard. I don't know if it's identity shattering to everyone, but it's certainly identity changing to move from somebody who feels like they have control over their life to feeling like they need help in order to manage their life. And I wonder if there's any kind of parallel for that within the gender transition or perhaps the gender dysphoria experience around whether you ever felt like you needed help. And if so, if you felt like you had shame for needing help. I don't think so. I don't think that there, for me, there's much of a parallelism there. I mean, in very minor forms, like I needed somebody to help me after top surgery. Um, and I think we could circle back to the help that was necessary in terms of people holding and accepting this identity that I asked of them and seeing that reflected back at me. Um, but no, I think if anything, um, the work of transitioning is a continual lesson in how you can make the aloneness of it uh, empowering rather than isolating. It's, a, it's a, an incredibly... Um, I guess I, I'm surprised that you say that because so much of your life these days seems to be enriched through the experience of connecting with a community of other trans people. So is where is the isolation and how is it empowering? Because, you know, if we're if we're getting back to the to the literal, to the material, um, I mean, you literally need hands to pick up your child and help cook and do laundry and all of these um, quite directly impactful things. Whereas, yeah, maybe sort of on a emotional or psychological realm, for me, I can engage with community and feel more seen in that regard. But at the end of the day, like my baby is my body and I could mm -hmm. get my girlfriend to inject me if I really wanted to, but she hates needles and also it hurts less when I do it myself. So really it's like me and my body, not knowing where we're gonna end up with me being responsible for it, me being responsible for how I walk when I leave the house or who I look mm -hmm. at when I walk into a male restroom or how much I change my voice tonality when I'm ordering at a restaurant or on a phone call or blah, 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 blah. Um, and like, yeah, you can talk about that with other people, but like no one can do anything about your body. Um, so 
I think that the the reaching out to community, the sharing of pictures throughout transition and healing and top surgery and your first time at the beach and all of that, like that's beautiful and lovely. And I think it's also an attempt to counterbalance what can be for many people a feeling of extreme isolation in a very unchartered and ultimately uh, solo mission of you defining for yourself what your body and your identity is going to be. Do you have a vision of, and I don't mean to ask this as though, like, I think you should have this vision. I'm just curious whether the goal is to someday live an experience in which you and the baby, you and your body are the same. They do feel the same. They do feel the same. At this point, yeah. Um, but it's still, I mean, I was just, I was going back to the metaphor or the analogy between transitioning and motherhood and that difference of giving, giving birth to something that is, you know, still so much a part of you, but is inherently autonomous on some level Mm -hmm. versus with transitioning, giving birth to something that then kind of eats or eradicates the prior self. Wow. Yeah, it's a complete it's a complete inverse of the timelines of them because a uh, embryo begins by as a parasite in like as an internal parasite eating you up from the inside and then is born and from that moment forwards grows increasingly separate like with an almost perfectly linear trajectory of separation for the rest of your lives. And so the vision of motherhood is not, the ultimate goal is not one of oneness, but of a relationship with a separate being who was once not only made of your flesh and blood and organs and bone, but lived, was housed in your body. And that's mind blowing. <laughs> that's mind blowing. Crazy life we're living. That's how life works. <laughs> That is literally how life works. Without and without that labor, everything would end. <laughs>